This is the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. On this week's show, we'll be looking at some declining poll ratings for Jeremy Corbyn and asking what this means for the prospects of a future Labour government. We'll be analysing polling on David Miliband's popularity too, amidst continuing rumours that a new centrist party is about to be launched. What does his poll ratings tell us about the success or otherwise of any future party, should he be involved of course? And we'll finish today with a word of warning about how question wording really is important in polling, particularly when it comes to the question of a second referendum on Brexit. We may also find time to tell you about some new pollsters on the block, the more the merrier we might we will we all say. So uh, lots to discuss on this week's show, and um, I'm joined as ever by podcaster in crime, Leo Barassi. Leo, hello. Hello, Kieran. So let's take this podcast a little bit differently to what we've um, done in previous weeks. Normally we go through what's in the news, then we talk about some polling, but I think a lot of the news stories seem to be um, continuing, sort of ongoing ones. Um, and one of the big trends seems to be uh, looking at Jeremy Corbyn's popularity. So what do the polls tell us about that? Right. So obviously, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked a bit about the narrowing of the poll between Labour and the Tories. But a new poll's come out this week, a YouGov one, which has um, looked at it from a different angle, which is comparison of how well Corbyn is seen to be doing relative to how well uh, May seems to be doing. And what's really striking is the score that Corbyn's got for well versus badly uh, has really dropped a long way since the last time it was asked. Now, he's on minus 25 now, so 31% say he's doing well, compared with 56% say he's doing badly, so a net of minus 25. And that compares with minus 8 the last time it was asked. Now, to be fair, that was in December, so that's a while ago. Uh, but there certainly does seem to have been a pretty big shift in his numbers over the last few months. And I guess no surprise uh, or no guesses um, as to what that might be about. Although are although are there actually? Because I mean, we assume this is about anti-Semitism, Russia, but those things aren't necessarily all co- contributing the same, are they? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think our instinct has been lately that it's Russia is a far more salient story than anti-Semitism, um, and. I think we've talked about that with a bit of guesses in the past, but actually, interestingly, um, we've now got some numbers to back that up. So two separate YouGov polls that um, a month or so apart have asked how closely people are paying attention to the anti-Semitism story and how closely they're paying attention to the Russia story. And I think, as we suspected, um, the Russia story is cutting through much more. So 58% say that they are following very or fairly close, closely the Russia story, only 25% say the same about the anti-Semitism story. Now, I think you should always take those numbers as sort of um, hard numbers as a pinch of salt. I mean, you know, what does someone mean when they say that they're following it closely? I don't know. But the point is, more than twice as many people say that they're following the Russia story. So if Corbyn's numbers have fallen and we're looking for an explanation, then I think the first one that we would reach for would probably be Russia rather than anti-Semitism. Yes, and I think I, I would agree with that. And I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how that plays out because I, I don't think the story is going away, of course, because um, it's kind of evolved beyond the Salisbury attack generally, hasn't it, into the, the ongoing discussion around Syria. But I suppose that creates an added layer of complexity that I'm I'm a bit confused how it's going to play out because one of the things I've said on this podcast is I think that where he misjudged the uh, public mood was over the fact that you know Putin's very unpopular, Russia as a country is very unpopular here. 
There was no real sense of war with Russia, in my view, uh, over the Salisbury attack. But now this is pivoting to um, us returning back to the um, sort of wider discussion of Syria. I think on that issue and getting militarily involved there, that is more credible. And that might be an area where Jeremy Corbyn has more more support in his scepticism. So I don't, I don't know what you think. It, it's, it's a hard one to unpick how this all plays out. Yeah, I guess slightly weirdly, having said over the last couple of weeks that my instinct is his position on Russia was a bit more in tune with the public mood when he said we should wait to see the evidence before we rush in, specifically over Salisbury. I'm not so convinced. And again, I haven't seen any polling on it, but if if there was a question related to should uh, should Britain be prepared to launch airstrikes directly in retaliation for the Assad regime's uh, alleged, um, and I think alleged is very generous to them, um, uh, chemical weapons attack on their own people. I'd be surprised if the numbers came out looking uh, favourable for a sort of Corbynite perspective of let's wait and see, let's get harder evidence before we do anything. I suspect if the intervention was seen to be limited and wasn't going to be something that was dragging Britain back into another war in the Middle East, but was a sort of short, short-term short uh, punishment for what we've seen as a, um, an absolutely beyond-the-pale crime, that, again, Corbyn might not succeed with his, his instinctive foreign policy position there. The interesting thing when we look at these Corbyn numbers is to to compare them um, to Theresa May, isn't it? Because it's, it's easy to forget where we were sort of this time last year. I mean, she was the all-conquering um, person who obviously chose to, to to call a general election off the back of that popularity, and uh, Corbyn was the unelectable man who who wasn't going anywhere. And things seem to have I don't know if they've reversed, but they've certainly shifted dramatically since then. But her poll ratings seem to be edging back, to, not maybe as far as they were, but certainly up, don't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, she's on minus six now. And um, as you might recall, I just said that Corbyn was on minus 25. So, um, yeah, certainly, um, you know, certainly closer. And for what it's worth, um, at the same time that Corbyn was, the Corbyn question was last asked and he was on minus eight. Um, May was, um, um, let's see, she was on minus 14. So, um, the fact she's on minus six now, it's a less dramatic swing. But when Corbyn has been going down, she's been going up. Um, and by the way, uh, we, have, we haven't said yet that um, these YouGov numbers are backed up by a separate poll that has found pretty much exactly the same numbers um, asking um, how well or badly people are doing. And uh, I think we're going to go on and talk about it, but that is a poll by Delta Poll. So Delta Poll are a new sort of organisation, um, the brainchild, if that's the right word, of Joe Twyman and Martin Boone. Joe Twyman, formerly of YouGov, Martin Boone, formerly of ICM. So two extremely experienced uh, pollsters in the UK polling industry. So very interesting to see what they're going to come out with and some of their new numbers. They had some numbers on anti-Semitism, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And, you know, obviously, having just said that uh, that's something that um, we reckon, or at least I think is is fairly well backed up by evidence, isn't as salient as Russia. Uh, it's interesting that people are still are still asking polling questions about it and still getting responses that don't look great about um, for for Labour. So they asked quite a complicated question, um, which, um, again, this is sort of one of those where I need to spend a bit of time reading out the answer choices to 
kind of give a sense sense of what's there. But uh, essentially, they said uh, you may have seen or heard about anti-Jewish uh, sentiment in the Labour Party. Uh, which one do you agree with? And then people are given five options, four of which are critical of Labour or Corbyn. So they say Labour is riddled with people holding anti-Semitic views, including Corbyn, um, and Labour or Labour is riddled with people holding anti-Semitic views, but Corbyn is not one of them. And then you have it the other way around. So Labour has pockets of anti-Semitism, one of which includes Jeremy Corbyn, and Labour has pockets of anti-Semitism, but Jeremy Corbyn is not in one of them. And then finally, you have the one that um, rejects all of that, saying the Labour Party has little or no anti-Semitism within it, stories about it exaggerated by the mainstream media. So got five options there. What they came out with was 51%. And then don't, and then don't know as well, we should say. That's right. Don't know um, with 35%. So 51% gave one of the top four answers that included Labour um, having some or being riddled with anti-Semitism. And 34%, so uh, about two-thirds of those, uh, gave an answer that included Corbyn as being anti-Semitic. So on the face of it, it, it sort of about half the public think that Labour has anti-Semitism and about a third think that Corbyn is personally anti-Semitic. Now, I mean, we were talking about it a bit off air, and I think you know we both find the question quite long and complicated and I think a bit difficult to get your head around. I mean, one of the things that stands out to me is I think I'm always a bit troubled by a polling question that has four answers that are grouped together one way and the fifth answer or lots of answers that can be interpreted to mean one thing and only one answer that can be interpreted to, to mean another. I mean, the truth is people answer polling questions reasonably quickly. You get a bit of randomness um, if you have lots of answers uh, that sort of catch people in one bucket and fewer in the other, then the the smaller bucket is generally going to get uh, fewer get get fewer people in it. So I'm not sure that I love the wording of this. Yeah, and of course the risk is that someone sees that and says, "Oh, the majority of the British public think Labour's anti-Semitic," which obviously would be a huge headline um, to push. The very next question actually asks, "Do you think that anti-Semitism is generally more common within the Labour Party compared to other political parties?" generally less common within the Labour Party compared to other parties, generally um, as common within the Labour Party compared to other parties and don't know. 22% said it was generally more common within the Labour Party compared to other parties. 10% said uh, less common within the Labour Party. Uh, 28% said as common within the Labour Party. And then 39% said don't know. So um, we're not talking about half the public there thinking that Labour's anti-Semitic there, are we? I mean, I guess it's a different, a slightly different question wording, but it does show you how careful you've got to be of how you interpret some of these numbers. Yeah, that's that's right. And I mean, in fairness, I don't think anyone <clears throat> has been taking this and, and making a, a big deal of it. But um, yeah, I mean, I suspect this is one of those issues where people actually don't really, for the most part, have a strong settled view on what's going on i think mm. i mean i, I was uh, purely anecdote but i was talking to a mate yesterday who is very political but doesn't really follow party politics and neither he nor his partner actually had any idea what the story was and i think it's sort of quite telling that this is one of those things that is very westminster villagey i think it was backed out by the poll number we referred to mm. earlier um it's sort of i'm just like you can ask these questions but i Whatever numbers you get, I struggle to think that it's sort of that relevant and that important. I mean, I think the issue is hugely important, as as I've said before, um, and I think it really matters. But 
in terms of public opinion about the sense that Labour or Corbyn is or isn't anti-Semitic, I just just don't think this is really a public opinion issue. Yes, and I think a lot of people that are particularly political will see it through that prism as well, won't they, um, in terms of how they view politics first and foremost. Um, there was another question in that poll that I thought was um, quite important and one we don't see very much of, um, and this was about the economy. So it said, putting aside any support for a political party, yeah, right, you may have, which of the following do you think would be best uh, for the British economy? A Conservative government led by Theresa May with Philip Hammond as Chancellor, 42% said that. A Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn with John McDonnell as Chancellor, 29% said that. And 29% said don't know. So there, at face value, is a 13-point lead um, for the Conservatives and their named candidates on the economy, which... Um, feels quite striking to me, Leo, because it, we used to say it's the economy stupid, didn't we? So could that be quite important in a future general election, do you think? So I think there are two different ways we can look at this question. Now, you can either say this is really bad news for Labour and good news for the Tories. Um, uh, so a 13 point lead for the Tories at a time when they're only getting poll leads of two and th- two to three points. Now, obviously, that's much more than they were having a couple of months ago. And you might look at this and say, when push comes to shove and people are asked in an election, who do you want running the country? Uh, this is a strong hint that actually, when the option in front of them is May and Hammond versus Corbyn and McDonnell, even though at the moment they might be flirting with Labour, when, when push comes to shove, they're going to uh, drop over the Tory side of the line. Now, I think in normal times, I think we would probably tend towards that explanation. But I was sort of dwelling on the fact that only 63% of people who voted Labour last time say that they would prefer Corbyn and McDonnell over May. And I sort of I looked at it and thought, that's terrible for Labour. Those, those are really dreadful numbers um, that, only, that they've got a third of people who voted from last year who would who say that they would prefer the other sides to be running the country. But then you can think about it the other way, which is last year, the, exactly these people were put up as the option. So May and Hammond versus Corbyn and McDonnell. Now, it's possible that those lab, last year, 2017 Labour voters have changed their minds since then. But actually, I think you can just as easily and perhaps more convincingly make the case that they might say that the the thirty seven percent thirty seven percent of them who say that they or don't say that they'd prefer Corbyn or McDonald. They might say that, but actually we've got demonstrable evidence that only a year ago, with exactly these choices, they did still vote Labour. So I don't know. I think I'm sort of on reflection. I'm a bit more skeptical about the importance of this. My my view on this is that I don't think we can make a a definitive declaration either way i mean yeah historically i agree with you we'd have said it's the economy stupid that's a warning sign for labor i accept what you've said about the fact that we've just had a general election but i think what this this should still be a cause for concern for labor strategists because you don't quite know how this is going to play out in the future just because these i mean let's call them corbyn skeptics right just because these corbyn skeptics have voted labor in 2017 I don't know, I I instinctively feel that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to next time. Some will, some won't, etc. So I think Labour should be doing a lot of work on who those people are and what the messages are that can lock them in because it may have worked in 2017, it might not work next time. And one of the things that we see is there is this consistent rump of about one in four Labour voters uh, that that aren't necessarily convinced by the leadership. Um, YouGov, when they ask about who would you prefer 
to be the next prime minister. About 20, uh, 24%, 25% of Labour voters uh, say don't know as well. So there is this consistent uncertainty among Labour voters that Labour need to be uh, keep need to keep an eye out for. I'm not saying for a second that, that means that one in four Labour voters are going to switch parties. Uh, I don't, don't believe that for a moment. But it does show you that there is that scepticism among the Labour vote about their leadership that does not exist among the Tory vote. So whether that means the Tory vote's stronger is another is a completely other question. Um, and there's all sorts of different things that are going to happen between now and the next election, new leaders, etc. But I'd be nervous about that if I was Labour. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I see that. I think it's worth saying, though, that although only two thirds, 63% of Labour voters say that they would prefer Corbyn and Bertoldle, 28% of them are in the don't know camp rather than saying May or Hammond. Mm. So it's not like they are declaring that they're going to jump over. And, you know, an election generally is a forced choice between the two. Um, all of that said, I mean, you know, another way of looking at this that perhaps is, again, back to being more pessimistic for Labour is that a lot of those people who didn't like May, uh, sorry, Corbyn and McDonnell last time still voted Labour because they thought there was no chance of Labour forming the government. Mm. Um, obviously, that was a pretty uh, common argument, despite the closening of the polls up to election day. So perhaps there were a lot of people who intentionally disliked the Tories, so wanted to vote against them. But would never have wanted a Corbyn-led government. Now, if that if that fear is no longer there, or the belief that Corbyn can't win is no longer there in the next election, then perhaps push does come to shove a bit in a different place here. Yeah, it's really hard to know, and I want to be really clear with listeners. You know, I'm I'm not coming down either side of the fence here. I think there is a very plausible argument that says, yep, they might be sceptical, but they're going to vote Labour anyway because old habits die hard. And there's equally a, an argument that says. Oh, I'd be worried. I, you know, they're going to jump ship, or that they're not convinced by um, Corbyn as prime minister. I just think we need to note the presence of that group. That there's one in four Labour voters that are sceptical of the leadership. Um, what actually happens as a consequence of that uh, group existing is to be confirmed, I suppose. One of the things moving swiftly on that people have talked about uh, with all this scepticism that's about is a new centrist party. Uh, it gets the um, it gets the sort of uh, blood boiling on various sides of the political aisle, um, and we've got some polling not on the centrist party itself, but on the hypothetical leader, the prince across the water. I am at all, across talking about the next manager of West Brom. Uh, David Miliband. Um, no, of course not. But um, there's some favourability numbers on David Miliband in this recent YouGov poll. Um, 24% favourable towards him, 46% unfavourable. So that's a net favourability rating of minus 22. So not the best ratings, really. Among Labour voters, um, he's, they're very evenly split. 37% favourable, 37% unfavourable. So that's literally a net uh, favorability rating of zero. If you want to compare that to Jeremy Corbyn, his net favorability rating is plus 42. It's obviously very popular among Labour voters. So what do we make about uh, old David Miliband, uh, Leo? For some reason, he seems to keep coming up, doesn't he? Is this just the uh, the political correspondence lacking imagination, do you think? Kieran, David Miliband was a major topic in conversation in episode number one of Polling Matters. And I'm fairly confident that he's going to continue to be a major <laughs> for as long as this podcast lasts um just because you know i mean as as we said back then and it's still true there's there's a kind of folk memory of david Miliband as as a really good politician and there's sort of people can uh which is uh, debatable to say the least right right yeah but you can because because of his absence from politics then it's possible to sort of pin all kinds of things on him that aren't there i think i think actually 
in the in the years it's been since since episode number one i think that has become a bit punctured and i think the sort of people have got tired of it of the sort of really really won't kind of thing um in terms of favorability numbers and the poll um something that's um striking and a bit surprising is minus 22 is bad it's still the second most popular out of everyone who was in this poll I mean, it's it's not by much, and uh, it's you know it's it's win mar- within margin of error, and you don't want to be starting off as a sort of exciting leader when you're already unpopular. But let's let's not uh, treat minus twenty two as a kind of disastrous score. I mean, to give a couple of others, uh, Corbyn is on minus twenty three, Boris Johnson's on minus twenty six, Vince Cable's also on minus twenty three, Theresa May currently leading. This is very favourable down to very unfavourable. She is on minus 13. So everyone's uh, in net negative. Um, And obviously, the sort of the real problem for Miliband is that David Miliband is that few people particularly like him. Um, The thing about Corbyn and uh, Mm. May and anyone who's strongly identified with a particular party is you have a bunch of real loyalists who are big fans of them. And uh, it's sort of it's no good having lots of people being okay about you. You need to have some people who really like you. Yeah, and one of the interesting, uh, quite funny findings was that David Miliband's highest favorability rating was um, just pure favorability. This is not net. Was forty nine percent favorable among Lib Dems. Thirty seven percent of Labour voters were favorable, but Lib Dems like him more. Um, smaller base size, about two hundred ish, I think it was. Uh, I might have got that wrong, but a relatively small sample size. Um, but even so, that's not insignificant. You can you can look at 200. That's fine. I've looked at less in my time, I think. Um, but one of the things that struck me as well was that Ed Miliband's uh, net rating was minus 33. And his um, his net rating for favorability among Labour voters was um, minus one. So I was quite surprised by that. I, I instinctively thought that Ed Miliband would be pretty popular among Labour voters as the sort of nice guy that was defeated and precursor to Corbyn, certainly not seen as a, a Blairite. We'll come to him. Um but yeah, I guess uh, we, we have a theory about that, don't we, Leo? Yeah, they've been listening to his podcast. <laughs> no, I joke. It's very good. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, you say that it struck you and it was a bit surprising. Uh, I think I'm no longer surprised by this. I think it is so universally consistent that where, where Tory voters uh, idealise their former prime ministers, Labour voters trash them. So... Um, it is absolutely consistent that former Labour leaders, and particularly those who uh, had the cheek to become Prime Minister, um, are unpopular among Labour voters. Before we move on to our final topic, I just want to talk on about this, this centrist party idea or this new party idea more generally. I mean, I, I tweeted recently that one of the things that, I mean, there's a few different rules that you, you have, a few different questions, I should say, that you have to ask about whether or not ever any future party will be successful. Okay, there might be this 50 million quid knocking about that you know, is going to start it and all the rest of it. But um, you know, who's going to lead it and what's the platform going to be and what, what's its positioning? You know, who's going to vote for it? These might sound like really obvious questions, but I wonder to what extent that thinking has been done. If you're going to break the mould, as it were, um, you, you're going to have someone, you, you need someone that's pretty popular, pretty high profile, and you've got to have a definitive platform. I mean, whether you like UKIP or not, they had a pretty clear identity and a very okay, very divisive um, slash unpopular leader in Nigel Farage, but someone that people knew. And they only managed to get 13, was it 13, 14% in a general election? Uh, my memory sort of fails me a bit. 
And two of the people that are most associated with a future new party, Tony Blair and Nick Clegg, not necessarily that Blair would lead it, but he's kind of like seen as the champion of the, he likes to talk about the politically homeless and all this. Well, Blair's uh, favorability rating is minus 50, 67% unfavorable. Clegg's is is a bit better, but not a lot better, minus 37. I mean, these these don't seem like the types of characters that you want to hang a new party around, do they? Yeah, absolutely. But I kind of think a bit like... The, tr- the trouble is we started using this term centre party as if there is such a thing as the centre ground, as, as if um, these, uh, as if sort of you can have a party that involves George Osborne, John Major, Tony Blair, um, everyone who's in the Lib Dems at the moment, and they're all going to kind of have a coherent policy platform. I mean, these are fundamentally different positions that they have. And um, just, I guess, sort of trying to look for a figure and fishing from a pool that is everyone who doesn't like Labour or the Tories at the moment just and ends up with sort of quite a kind of fantastical exercise that, that doesn't really mean anything. Um, so I guess I kind of just go a, a step further back from from looking at the ex, uh, ex seat frontline politicians and uh, to say, well, you know, what what is it that this party is supposed to be doing? Because I think it's pretty clear. Is it economically is it socially democratic or is it economically liberal i mean that's a fundamental question that i think no one has seriously answered okay everyone knows that it's not going to like brexit but is it new labor or is it cameronite tory because those are fundamentally different things yeah i mean i I could see the argument why maybe like a stop brexit coalition or something might i I don't know if that would be the name you'd use for it but something like that would I wouldn't even go as far to say I think it would be popular, but I can sort of see how people from different political stripes might lend their vote to something that was called something like that. Yeah, um, but wouldn't it just be the, called the Liberal Democrats? I mean, well, this is what I was going to. How, how, how is it? How is it different? This is and, what I was going to come on to, and I think that we talked about the Liberal Democrats, and I think that you know people, it's easy for people to sneer at them. And I kind of understand that the legacy of the coalition still looms large, especially when um, Vince Cable is the leader. I think I, I don't think we should underestimate that. Um, but people should ask themselves the question, seriously, why is it that the Liberal Democrats aren't breaking through? Because a lot of the people that you would think this hypothetical new centrist party should appeal to, a lot of those people should ought to be considering the Lib Dems, shouldn't they? I mean, these, these are sort of social, uh, liberal, either economically or social democrat. I mean, that's what literally what the Liberal Democrats are. Um, my, I mean, maybe uh, we don't need a new centrist party. Maybe the Liberal Democrats just need a new leader. But um, I mean, I don't... You know, there's a small pool from them uh, from which to to pull, isn't there? But um, you know, I, I don't. I certainly don't think Vince Cable being Lib Dem leader helps their their chances of resurgence. Yeah, and he obviously tried a thing quite recently where he he said something along the lines of um, "Leave voters who are all old racists," and uh, you know that. Frankly, if you if you want cut through as a populist Remain party is probably the right message if you want to get the really angry Remainers who, mm. for whom it's a number one issue and um, they, they kind of want to fight a culture war. Um, but he's obviously backed away from that. that. That feels like a sort of one-off shot that hasn't, hasn't really lasted. And I don't know, perhaps if they did try and double down on that, they, they might do better among the sort of social democratic, extreme, open um, socially liberal side side of the, the sort of political quadrant that isn't really served at the moment, but um, 
yeah, they don't really feel like they're they're sort of prepared to go that aggressively. On because that. one of the stories of the last general election really was how Jeremy Corbyn managed to pull in the Remain vote, wasn't it? Even though he met, he was essentially backing Brexit. I know people have strong, passionate views on this and whether it's the right or wrong um, decision. But just, you know, I'm not saying that to be uh, critical of him. Um, I think actually it was a pretty successful political strategy um, Labour, Labour had at the last general election and uh, not going in, calling for a second referendum. We'll come on to that in a moment. Um, but I suppose, yeah, I mean, you could argue that Lib Dems should be targeting that group quite strongly because why did they stick with Corbyn? Why did they go over to Corbyn? We don't know. Um, but maybe that maybe that brand is just a busted flush. I don't know, Leo, if you saw um, Stephen Bush's article in the New Statesman on, on this uh, on this idea, saying that there was room for a new party, but it wasn't a uh, a centrist or liberal one. It was uh, one of the one of the right. What did, what did you make of that? Yes, I think that is exactly right, and that's that's where I was going. Um, so the the work of someone that um, if pe- people listening aren't following her on Twitter, they should. Uh, a political sociologist at Bristol called Paula Surridge who um, does a lot of work on this stuff. Um, and, you know, actually having a minute ago just said um, uh, there's an unserved space in the uh, the social democratic, so sort of left-right axis, uh, open or socially liberal side of the uh, liberal authoritarian axis. I think that's, that's true to an extent because Corbyn is, um, with his Brexit position, not serving... The, the open side especially well. But actually, as Paul de Surridge has shown and, and Stephen Bush um, wrote up, um, the the big gap is the authoritarian left, um, the uh, pro-Brexit, but also um, sort of nationalist, um, uh, tough on crime, um, tough on it or anti-immigration and it's there's obviously some of that that the Labour and Corbyn are trying to appeal to with their their Europe positioning but it's clear that Corbyn isn't the man to appeal to that but how, is, but how is that different to the Tories this is the this is the thing I'm curious it's, about because it's left-wing economically so that's that's the important thing that we've got to keep clear in our heads these two different axes so the Tory the Tories are are uh, to the right uh, economically and um, broadly on the authoritarian side, but not too far over. Labour are left economically and they're trying to straddle the two sides. But um, it feels like the positioning that UKIP could have taken and never quite managed to take. They So UKIP obviously owned very much the authoritarian closed side of the axis, but they never really quite managed to nail the being left-wing economically. Uh, and it's sort of, it's a pro-nationalisation it's a higher tax on the rich, uh, but at the same time, it's uh, tough on crime, tough, tough on migration. You know, it's, it's a sort of left, left-wing populist argument that is not really being served. And, you know, La- Labour are benefiting from it not being served because they, they kind of get the left-wing side of it. But it does still feel like a gap. You could also argue the Tories are benefiting from it not being served as well, right? Because yeah, yeah, you know, sure. I mean, that's what's going to make the um, the Tories' next leadership contest um, fascinating. Because I suppose, I mean, if you look at the runners and riders, okay, who we could speculate the runners and riders would be, you can definitely see a sort of really kind of hardcore Brexiter can, a candidate. But they're not necessarily going to be open to those left wing economic policies, are they? Right, like yeah. Jacob Rees Mogg, so, for it's, example. It's like, it's like the speech that Theresa May gave when she just became Prime Minister, where it was clear that she was going to be uh, push, pushing Brexit, but she also gave quite a lot of um, sort of 
pro left behind, uh, pro the kind of little person sort of talk. And that, that I think was what gave her the great numbers at the start, that it felt like she was going to be very centrist economically whilst being quite authoritarian. And, and that, that's the position that, I mean, it's sort of, it's not totally dissimilar from Blair. Um, he was obviously more left economically than, than May was proposing to be, but he realised that to have a, have a large majority, you, d- you did need to be somewhat authoritarian in a way that, that is just not Corbyn's instincts. Yeah, I mean, I wonder whether Theresa May has got the time to try and win that back. I mean, her poll ratings are improving slightly. I mean, you, you can imagine it only takes one or two stands on certain issues or maybe, I don't know, invest extra money in X. I mean, I have no idea if she's got the... The, the sort of political desire to do this but, uh, or, or even believes in it. But you do wonder whether she's got time to sort of go back in that direction and improve her poll ratings further. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the criticisms of her tended not to be on her policies or on her values. It tended to be much more personal of, you know, she's wooden, she's robotic, um, she's no good in a crisis. And... I, yeah, I, I wonder whether actually a, a much stronger push on the kind of stuff that she was talking about when she first came in as leader could um, take some of that territory that still feels quite open. Let's uh, finish off with this um, this poll from YouGov for Best for Britain, um, which did the rounds, uh, I think it was last week. Um, Fieldwork, 5th to 6th of April, so yeah, last week showed very, very clearly that the way you ask the um, should there be a second referendum question gives very, very different, can give very, very different answers depending on how you ask it. So again, without being too wordy, we kind of have to read the wording so you understand, listeners, what we're saying. So they split the sample. Um, there was uh, 1,636 interviews overall. The sample was split and asked two de- separate questions. One half was asked, once the negotiations between Britain and the European Union over a Brexit deal have been completed, do you think there should or should not be a public vote on whether that Britain accepts the deal or remains in the EU after all. Should 39, should not 45, not sure 17. So tighter than I've seen in the past, but consistent with what I've seen in the past, which is that there's opposition to another referendum on Brexit. But there was a second uh, question asked to a different sample saying, once negotiations between Britain and the European Union over Brexit deal have been completed, so the same introduction, do you think the public should be given a final say on whether Britain accepts the deal or remains in the EU after all? Should 44, should not 36, not sure 19? So Leo, this tells us, if we knew this already, but how you ask the question gets very different numbers. So how do we interpret that? <laughs> Because um, I, I I, I mean, yeah. I'll throw my tuppence in there. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think I think what it okay. Obviously, there's a, there's a sort of nerdy polling point that says okay, you know, yes, minister esque. How you how you ask the question, how you order the questions is important. But I don't think that's what these guys are doing here. They're, they they've split the sample, and to be honest, they've quite honestly published both bits. So there is a con. I mean, they should. Don't get me wrong. Um, it'd be dishonest not to. But you know, they, they've not they're not hiding the fact that there is this difference. I think what it can show um, politicians and politicos is how if you get your messaging right, you get a different response from the public. So whether or not, you know, just calling it a final say is really going to shift people towards the idea of a second referendum, I don't know. But it does show that this idea of calling it a final say seems to be more, people seem to be more amenable to that. So I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting that it's going to go this way, but it does show the messaging is important. Yeah, I entirely agree. Um, People obviously resist anything that sounds like government or politicians are saying, we didn't like the answer you gave last time, have another go. Um, However, 
if the question is, uh, okay, we've done what you've asked and we've negotiated a deal now, are you happy with us to go ahead with that? If it's phrased like that, then there is, uh, I guess, something like 5% of people switch from saying no to saying yes. Um, and it's not just this poll. Um, we talked um, a few months ago about a Lord Ashcroft poll that, that did the same thing, that gave four different ways of asking it um, from plain, do you want a second referendum on Brexit, uh, through to uh, one that says uh, holding a referendum on whether to accept the terms or leave without a deal, which was the one that was most popular. Um, and it's, it's consistent. I mean, this one's had quite a bit of attention, but for a while, uh, it's been clear that telling people, offering people a second referendum or a chance to change their mind isn't popular. Offering people a, a chance to mark politicians' homework is popular. And what's really interesting about this poll is actually the people that change their mind are Leave voters specifically. So if you look at the crossbreak, um, Remain voters, 68% want a refer another vote however you ask it. So 68% say on the first version I gave, yep, should be another vote. 67% say it on the option B, final say. So that's pretty, pretty, that's pretty similar. Whereas of leave voters, on the first way of should there be another vote, 73% oppose it. But on the second way, when we, when we call it final say, 61% um, oppose it. So much less opposition. And there's an eight-point increase in the people that say, yep, there should be a final uh, sort of second vote. So it is specifically the leavers that change their mind a bit. So I wonder whether that's not, well, not changing their mind, it's a different sample, but that, that, that response differently so i wonder whether that's leave voters saying well yeah i'll get i'll have a final say but you know what my answer is going to be uh yeah maybe um and um the the following question in better britain survey uh was uh, how would you vote and, and uh this one which perhaps got a bit less attention had 44 percent uh vote to remain 41 percent vote to leave so uh yeah fine i mean it's 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 helpful for them but still i mean it's all pretty close um, and, you know, I'm pretty sceptical that anyone can say at the moment, particularly with the fundamental question, fundamental question of who is going to turn up and vote on the day. Um, no one can really say uh, how it would go. So, yeah, sure. I mean, you might be getting leavers who uh, will be even proud to turn up and say that they want to leave. Um, but I guess for, the, for people who want a vote on the deal um, rather than a second referendum, then uh, that's the battle that they'd have to win first to get yeah. support for that. I mean, I should add in closing, I don't think it's going to happen, but um, it, you know, it is interesting that they're at least trying to get the messaging um, messaging right. But until Labour come out in favour of that, it ain't happening, folks. But that's all we've got time for for this week's Political Betting Polling Matters podcast. Big thanks to Leah Brassi, as ever, for joining me and going through some of those numbers. Um, if you like what you hear, as ever, please do share us on social media or give us a like on our Facebook page or a positive rating on iTunes and other podcast apps. It really does help get the podcast's name out there. And if there's any topics that you want us to cover in the coming weeks, uh, please do let us know on Twitter, either at Leah Brassi or at Kieran Pedley. But for now, thanks once again for listening, and we'll speak to you next week.